What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, 
home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, this is film study for week 12. Looking back at the Monday Night Football victory, 23-16 to over the Houston Texans. It is film study with Ken McCusick, which means, Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing all right. I had a good uh, Thanksgiving weekend and week, which I'm assuming you did as well. Couldn't be better. All right. Well, let's get, we've got a guest on the line tonight, so let's get Dev on the line from Russell Street Report. Dev, how are you doing this week? I'm fantastic, Josh, and... Uh... Pleasure to be here with you guys, with you, Ken, as well. All right. It's good. I just want to say a word about that. Yeah. We'll go way back on Russell Street Report, a decade or so, writing together. Tremendous respect for his work doing battle plans. And one thing to really like about that work is it's first principles work. You're not going to hear what somebody else said, and you're not going to hear what somebody else wrote about what somebody else said. You're going to hear what his, what Deb's first principles opinions are about the upcoming game. Yeah, and that's, that's yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that that's great, and that's why I go to Russell Street Report is to read film study after the game and battle plans to get me ready for the upcoming game. So, Dev, just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, uh, exactly the way Ken put it. I mean, battle plans is is meant to be as authentic as possible. I, I will read the opposing reporters and opposing writers and analysts take from the opponents, but you know when it comes to being able to break down the matchups and how they might play out from the Ravens' perspective, and, and also kind of taking in the opposing team's perspective, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like a beautiful mind or something. I don't know how to put myself in that category, but I don't know. This everything kind of comes together authentically, uh, and it, it's it's something that, as Ken points out, pointed out, the beauty of it is that it is our perspective. So you're gonna you know you can't you're not gonna find it anywhere else. So. Um, and it's been a pleasure to, to work on that article for years now. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, let's get into the the dirt, what people turn into. Let's get into the Monday Night Football game, which I, as your average fan, went into Monday Night Football saying, all right, the Ravens play well in prime time, which is weird because they used to be horrible in prime time. But right. I've been wondering about this team. Are they good? Are they bad? What is this defense really like? And I didn't learn anything on Monday night. I have the same questions. So let's go with the, the experts. And what did you guys see and, and take away? Well, I, I guess I, I, I'll start. I was frightened when Ronnie Stanley was on the field and then walking off very slowly into the clubhouse. Jadavian Clowney was having his way with the Ravens, whether run or pass. Ravens hadn't really piled up any yardage. Soon as he left the field for a play, Clowney broke through against Skira. There was a hold and a sack on that play just seemed like the worst fears were being confirmed and that we were going to have a repeat of that 2014 game when the Texans at Houston really took uh, the Ravens out of the playoffs until they got backdoored in the next week again. And, uh, you know, we went into this game and we thought maybe this would be the fourth shutout, you know, match the 2000 Ravens. We did that once before in 2000 when the Browns came right after the Cowboys had been shut out and we expected another one because, hey, it's the Browns, damn it. And the Browns came in with an 86-yard drive on four plays. They scored. Ravens did go on to win 44-7, but it kind of ruined the whole day that the, the Browns scored a touchdown right off the bat. So, uh, anyway, that's uh, yeah. end up being like neither of those games, but we really do draw on our library of experiences. We have certain expectations. 
every game plays out its own way. Anyway, I'm I'm happy this one ended up being a win. I'm glad they found a way to adjust and and control Clowney and uh, and got it done. Uh, yeah, and Clowney, uh, Gruden made a big deal about uh, Clowney, saying he's going to be the highest paid defensive or guy's non quarterback. Dev, what did you see from as you were preparing for this game, looking at a guy like Clowney? Oh yeah, I mean everything kind of matched up. Uh, I, you know, in, in preparing to write up battle plans, the thing that stood out is that he does move everywhere, and that is kind of a, uh, you know, situation where Watt was also the guy that moved everywhere for them. But I think Clowney is more of a natural um, two two point stance rusher, so he can stand up and he can put his hand in he can put his hand in the dirt, which makes him more difficult to deal with when you're talking about having uh, your offensive line um, prepared so because he can rush from the inside, he can rush from the outside. So if you're devoting a certain blocking scheme to him, you're, you're going to have to move all over just as he moves all over. So he created that. Um, dif- he created a number of difficult um, scenarios for the Ravens from a blocking standpoint, and that all matched up. But I thought they did a great job, at, to, as Ken pointed out, to recover. And, and uh, really, when you, when you have a guy that's that disruptive, if you don't have anybody else that can help him out, it's a little bit easier to adjust as the game progresses. All right. Um, so, yeah, clearly uh, it was great for Ronnie Stanley to go uh, get by. But Hopkins made his presence known, and the, the corners really had trouble with Hopkins. What, what do we take from that? Yeah, I mean, it was in this game, I think it was just about all DeAndre Hopkins and his ability to – use his body, run through contact, make catches in a phone booth, all of the things that Hopkins does well. And, you know, I was very puzzled by the starting alignment for, for, for starters. Last week, Carr started the game, played 18 snaps, the first 18, gave up 50 yards on two plays to Devontae Adams at Green Bay, and then got yanked. And they put in Marlon Humphrey. He played the last 49 snaps. And, you know, I'm planting a flag and saying, Marlon Humphrey is the new starting left cornerback for the Ravens, which he really should have been. He should have played every snap the remainder of the season, as far as I'm concerned. But somehow Carr starts this game. Humphrey played just seven snaps all in the first half. And I think that was a a large part of the inability to deal with Hopkins. Smith individually had trouble, certainly. But when it's Smith and Carr and and Hopkins can cause trouble on both sides, uh, it's it's even worse. Sure. Yeah, Ken actually jump in i made a point in battle plans to not have Carr match up against hopkins at all costs so having humphrey out you know cars had a very good season but in in certain scenarios if you can match up just one-on-one i think humphrey can can do it i mean physically he's able to uh whereas Carr, i think you, you just have to have a safety helping him over the top and if you're going to play him one-on-one it changes the strategy too because how many times did how many times would they have had Humphrey just playing one-on-one without safety help. All of a sudden, you're scrambling to now potentially have Carr in that role. So it, it made a huge difference, I think, in, in kind of also the, the scheme and, and kind of maybe what they were trying to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, Humphrey could have been a guy to cover him one-on-one. But, you know, what? some people would say, why not have Jimmy Smith cover him one-on-one? 25.7 passer rating coming in against. Physically, he might not be ideal for DeAndre Hopkins speed-wise especially with the Achilles. But, you know, you have a very talented corner. I I personally like the ideas of corners playing their own side. I think there's certain coverage techniques, the boundary usage being on one side that corners grow more familiar with, they're more comfortable spatially with where they are, and they can usually play one side better than the other. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. All right, then why not uh, double-teaming him? Gruden the whole time kept saying if he's single-teamed, they're throwing to him. So why not double him more? Well, it, you know, the thing about the doubling part, it's not a knock on Jimmy Smith, per se. I just think, and this is the way I, I looked at it in, in terms of battle plans, was Hopkins is their guy, and they have nobody else that can threaten you. Will Fuller's out of the, out of the lineup. You know, C.J. Fedorowicz is a pretty good tight end, and he had some opportunities in the game yesterday to make plays, but you just have to figure out a way to take away that top top offensive threat and the only guy that's really going to kill you. And it seems like it, it, there is a bit of a pattern when it comes to the Ravens facing the top receivers at times when they have gotten beat despite the fact that there really isn't anybody else that can threaten you. So I think, to me, it was a it was a... I mean, I think there's times when you single Hopkins in certain scenarios. You trust Jimmy Smith. He's been having a great season. But I just didn't quite understand why it wasn't a consistent um, you know, consistent strategy to, to double him and to keep safety help over the top. You saw Weddle also struggle at times, not getting over on time. But to me, it's not a knock on Jimmy Smith if you, if you just stick to that double team and, and even triple team sometimes. I don't know what, what, I don't know what you think on that, Ken, though. Well, I, I I was trying to think back through my memory of the times that I really remember the Ravens using the double team. And the only game I can really remember, it worked out well for the Ravens. It was against Randy Moss in the 2009 AFC wildcard game. But we've had Pease here for five years. I don't remember him using it before strictly on one receiver. I mean, they've, they've played some obviously some top receivers in that time, but I, I don't remember it being done. But in 2009, they moved right. Ed Reed right over the top in double coverage on Randy Moss, and they stuck him there most of that game. And Randy Moss, I think, was held to three catches that day for not very much yardage. And, of course, the Ravens had a big day with interceptions and turnovers of other sorts as well uh, to, to get it done. But uh, but that's the last time I can really remember them going with a strict double-team opportunity. Yeah, if you just – I mean, the last thing I'd say is if you look at the Patriots mantra, right, it's taking away that best player. Whoever it is, however they need to do it, if they need to double the guy, whatever. And then going from there. So I, I just think – yeah, and it's a good point. I mean, Pease really hasn't done it as, I guess, um, consistently or if he's, if he's really done it at all. I mean, he might have done it in stretches. They did do it a few times in the game last night. Um, they just didn't do it consistently. Mm-hmm. And were, were they using Weddle over the top or Jefferson when they did it that you noticed? They had Weddle. Uh, yeah, it was to when, – when Hopkins was to Jimmy Smith's side, they had a couple of double teams between Weddle and Smith. Uh, they just couldn't. They just didn't keep it consistent throughout the game, and uh, you know, also use Weddle to disguise on blitzes, and then have him try to try to catch up and still double team uh, Hopkins. Uh, so that was another thing they they kind of threw in there. Yeah. I did not like the fact that they brought up Weddle for some play coast line of scrimmage, and I know they're kind of married to the versatility of Weddle and Jefferson. And every time I think they've taken a step towards really defining the roles more closely. They still go back to more Jefferson on the back end and more Weddle trying to blitz him. And I just, I don't like it as much. I, I, I prefer to let Jefferson do the blitzing, line of scrimmage, cover the tight end man-to-man, 70% of the time at least, maybe 80% of the time. I really don't want to see Weddle blitzing very often. It just takes too much from the back end. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't pay off yesterday because there's something up with his timing too at times. I don't know if it's a, because he's in that, he's caught in that in-between spot, that Joker role where he's about to drop, and then he—it's a lot. I think is on actually Weddle and his his decision making um, when it comes to maybe not just 
maybe not for the blitz itself, but timing up his disguise. And it, sometimes it's he tells the quarter. It, it's pretty clear tell that he's coming. Uh, so you saw that a couple of times as well. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I think um, what they have going with Jefferson playing close to the line of scrimmage a couple of times. He was a, in that linebacker role, um, you know, almost playing next to C.J. Mosley. And then they had uh, Anwasu playing the edge role. So it was. I thought that was much better. And um, I think they need to just keep Weddle in center field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let's uh, let's use that as a chance to talk about this pass rush, and we've talked a lot in the past weeks about uh, the deception and not using it a whole lot. It seemed like from the average fan watching, it seemed like Savage had a whole lot of time in the pocket. It, he did, and you know what the thing was—he only had ample time and space, nineteen out of thirty-nine times, which is a pretty normal number, fifty percent, forty-nine percent. That's been right around the Flacco average for the last eight years. So. It's not it's not extraordinary amount of ATS opportunities. The problem was that the ATS opportunities he have were forever. You know, they were four and a half, five second pockets that he right. got on a number of occasions. Um, the Ravens got a lot of late pressure for the second consecutive game, so they had three quarterback hits that were generated after ATS, and those are quite rare, by the way. You don't you don't often get that that you have a pocket that holds up, and then you still deliver a hit on the quarterback late. But they had three last week also at Green Bay. And, uh, and very odd to have six of those in a row in two games. So uh, one of the things I thought they would do for certain in this game was to dial up a lot more schematic pressure because Savage has a very high fumble rate. Eight fumbles, seven lost, and five starts. And most of those, I assume there's a couple aborted in there, and I didn't really look to see if they were all pass rush related. But, you know, there, there have been some certainly that have been pass rush related, and we know at least one from last night. Uh, Dean called nine individual blitzes in the game. That was up from three at Green Bay on 39 dropbacks. And they used deceptive pressure six times. And I don't have the number for Green Bay right in front of me, but I think it might have been three deceptive pressures at Green Bay. And they've had some twos and threes this year a fair amount. So six is actually a fair amount of deceptive pressure for him to be using. The one other thing about the pass rush is that they have given up on the six-man rush almost entirely for this team. They've never rushed seven this season. They've rushed six only 18 times in 11 games. And those, those plays have been very successful. They've had five sacks, uh, one turnover, and 1.8 yards per play on those plays. But they, but they haven't felt confident enough to use it regularly despite the quality of the secondary, which is something that's kind of, kind of bothered me about it. Dev, how do you feel about that in terms of, of things you're seeing with the pass rush that you're not entirely comfortable with? I... I really can't understand it either um, because six-man pressures when they're that effective and, and also with the secondary that you've built if you aren't confident enough to play man across the board in certain certain, certain scenarios I mean uh, especially in third and longs where I, I think every once in a while you got to gamble in third and long and I guess a quarterback like Savage we saw him throw the deep ball pretty well with Hopkins um, some of those gifted by penalties but you know he's going to throw the ball up to Hopkins he's going to do that um but for most for the most part you know savage was really bad throwing the deep ball coming into this game um will fuller uh, you know has been out for the last few games including the ravens game but you know i just think the chances to, to come against like, savage to bring some more all-out pressures i was expecting that uh especially in those third and longs and you know maybe potentially with hopkins you just have to figure out a way to to, to bracket him or something maybe and if you bring six obviously that that and if the Texans have all the receivers out on routes, that's the challenge um, with Hopkins. Is he's going to get man coverage, right? So, but 
I did expect more, um, and, and that's a surprising stat to me, that they haven't had more six-man pressures overall. Um, they did have one blitz, and I don't know if you saw that, Ken, but they had a, I think they had Levine and Jefferson in on an inside blitz. And Suggs, I think, was, was able to get free, and he just missed Savage. Um, so from a scheme standpoint, they were able to free up a rusher, and it worked nicely. Um, there were a couple times, too, when Savage, I, I thought, bought some times, you know, went back a little bit, and um, he did a good job adjusting to the, to the pressure. But, again, this is kind of a, a running theme now throughout the season. You saw it also against Bortles. Getting, you know, these guys get comfortable early on and, and on first down and second down. I'd come after them more um, with the secondary. And if Humphrey gets healthy, you know, they need to do that more often. Right. I, I mean, I agree. I think that might have been part of it last night is they decided they probably couldn't make the change because they really didn't have the corners to cover Hopkins. So that might have been part of it. With with regard to your other comment about cover zero, though, if they, if they as long as they don't have five wide, you know, five wide pretty much precludes mm-hmm. a six-man rush. But, but if they have a guy in the backfield, it's hard for that guy to release at all if there's a six-man pressure coming. It's why you can sometimes get seven-man pressure. But, you know, it's... The tight end also may be restricted in terms of his release as well. But the thing we noticed in this game was that Savage, on those 39 dropbacks, he had three turnovers created entirely by pressure. Two of them were created by pressure that caused interceptions. And one was, was created by the fumble, of course. So there's a payoff there. You just you, you have to wait for it, and you have to try and get that payoff. Defense is about getting variation. The offense can always win with average results. The defense wins by disparate results. So they need to they need to have penalty they need to generate penalties they need to generate pressure sacks stretches of incomplete passes and turnovers to to win a game. Yeah, just to end, the, I agree. If you have five guys out on routes, if you're in a five wide set, I mean, how much time is a quarterback going to have to complete a pass? It's usually going to be a quick throw, right? It's going to be something underneath. So that's the other sure. part of it. Is you want to get, you know, speed up the timing of the quarterback's throw, and that's why you bring more. But rushers then then they can block. So I think that's why we do need to see more of these uh, six man pressures overall. We yesterday we and a, a couple of the previous weeks we've seen the offense get a little more creative, but probably because they have to because the standard play is not working. Uh, is the defense more of a bland uh, standard playing defense because it's working because they don't have to? they can hold this stuff back for when we're playing the Steelers in a few weeks or eventually, I guess, the postseason maybe? I, I don't – I mean, I'll just speak up first, Dev. I, I'd love to hear your opinion on this one. But I, I don't know that they're really at this point holding anything back from the pl- for playbook purposes. They're, right. not, they're not holding back a bunch of secrets for that reason. I think they may be holding back because they just don't trust the back end as much as, as Dev or I would in terms of generating – Big plays versus the turnover gain from it, and uh, and may not like that part. So it's not more deception. Yeah, I think it's it's it, it, yeah. right, not deception of future opponents. Right. Yes. Yeah, I can't see. I mean, I cannot see a scenario when they play when they play Pittsburgh a few weeks from now, and actually when they play the Lions for that matter. Um, I haven't gotten too in the weeds yet, but I've seen enough Lions games to to know they're going to spread the ball out and they're going to challenge you with their receivers down the field. Um, I just, you know, I think there's a, there's a fear of giving up the big play right now. And it, and it could get back to the fact that they still haven't had their, their rotation solidified in terms of the corners all being healthy at once when they have, you know, will they be more aggressive? It's possible. I, I just don't see that 
I see it being more the other way where they're, they're trying to, to protect against big plays happening. Um, but at the, at the same token, you look at this front rush when they're bringing four guys and they're relying on that front line. It, it's not nearly as effective and especially I think against better quarterbacks. So I think it's, um, I think they have to generate and drum up that pressure and, and just take some chances with, with their secondary. Um, well, that's why you paid. That's why you spent the money on in in the, in the draft capital too coming into the year. Yeah, this this I I will say the four man pressure this year has been pretty darn effective. And and just to give you an idea, going into that game, they'd had nine sacks in the last eighty four four man pressures. That's a rate of over ten percent, which is extraordinary. The only team to do that for a whole season of the Ravens was the two thousand sixteen. This year, for the year so far, in terms of four man pressures. They've been sacking the quarterback 7%, which is quite good. Normally, it'd be about 5% in those situations. So uh, I am encouraged by how good the four-man rush is and how the four-man rush has generally worked. It's just I, I do want to see some extreme pressures as well. And I'm yeah, looking at my season. to see how. Oh, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just I, I'm looking at the season totals here, and I think I said something incorrect. They do have three seven-man rushes on the year for a total of minus one yards. No sacks on those plays either, so it must, well, have been, it must have been passes for negative yards. Well, there you go. Yeah, and I, I would. It's, it's going to be uh, with, like I said, with Stafford and, and Roethlisberger coming up. Those are going to be two very good litmus tests for this rush and, and secondary overall. Yeah, it'll be interesting because they, with the Steelers in particular, I think with the Lions, they they can focus on the pass rush and the and the. Uh, and certainly how they how they run their coverages in the secondary with the with the Steelers they've got the immense additional fear of the power running game and Le'Veon Bell and what that did to them last time, and figuring how to get penetration up front. They've got Brandon Williams back. It should help a lot in terms of disrupting that pull game. But I was sick and tired by the end of that analysis. I can tell you of watching two Steelers pull on a very high percentage of plays, either left or right, to uh, to get the running game going. That was the counter that Dean Pease said they hadn't uh, expected, right? That same counterplay? <laughs> that mysterious counterplay that came out of nowhere. That Steelers yeah, like nobody's ever seen lost. that since the 1920s, you know, <laughs> since football was invented. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess I'm just looking for trying to make sense of the inconsistency. That, that, they, that last week they can shut out the, the Packers and we can say, all right, well, the Packers are bad. But then the Steelers struggle with the Packers. So I can't, still can't figure out is this what's to take from this defense that they that they can do a shutout one week and then struggle a week later. Is it is it the is it the yards given up? Is that a concern? You know, I, I jump in here and say there's there's a lot of individual matchup things, and obviously DeAndre Hopkins was the big big deal in this game. Nothing else the Texans did in this game worked offensively. I mean, nothing else. They they completely failed to run the ball. The, the passer rating throwing to anybody who was not named DeAndre Hopkins was 45.1. It was 118 throwing to Hopkins. So it, it gives you an idea of you know just the, how limited they were in terms of their weapons offensively. I think the Ravens, they did not take away Hopkins, but they, they really did a good job on everything else. And I, I'd also say, and I agree with that, and I think Houston did some nice things from a play-calling standpoint. They, uh, on first down in particular, they threw the ball they had some success hitting on some throws down the field. So that's and something that I've, I've noticed throughout the season. I, you know, when you look at the tech, when you look at the, uh, the Titans, for example, 
they didn't have a, an effective offensive game, but they did get some throws on the Ravens when they were in their, their base personnel. So if a team spreads the Ravens out on first down, um, there are times when they're able to hit on some throws. And, and that's kind of just a byproduct, I think, of the personnel that's on the field. And I think um, offense is kind of picking up on that as, as an opportunity. But it's, it's really, um, you know, you're, you're still scratching for, for opportunities against this defense. And, and um, they're doing a good job for the most part. That was something I wanted to ask you about, Dev. We, we saw a lot of base personnel in this game. And I'll give you the breakdown here. But they did, let's see, let's do this here real quick. Uh, in, in terms of base personnel, they had 14 plays, 38, though, in the nickel, which was the majority, only 12 dime in this game. Uh, one thing that I was noticing was it really looked like the Texans preferred, even though they use a two-back set a fair amount, they, they would have preferred to run against the nickel to try and spread the Ravens out, which makes a lot of sense to me because I think that the Ravens' biggest weakness defensively is probably the second inside linebacker spot, and that gets magnified in terms of importance when you only have two linemen on the field. Yeah, that's something actually uh, I made a note of. They had a couple of um, they did they did look to run the ball on first down a few times against that nickel, and they had success on I think a couple of inside rushes, but it mm-hmm. was mostly nullified. I thought pretty well by the Ravens front. So they kind of um, they did a good job in, in terms of stuffing those first down runs even when they were in nickel. So in contrast, um, we've seen and I, I know you've 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 pointed this out when the Ravens have been in nickel and teams have been able to run the ball against them in other games this season. Um, now, I think Brandon Williams' influence has been instrumental in being able to negate some of that. And that could be, you know, how when they play the Steelers coming up later in the season when they're able to – that's going to be a huge key. Can they, can they stop the run with their nickel? Um, and I, I, thought, I thought the Texans tried a little bit. They, they did commit to the run. Maybe the Lamar Miller um, injury, you know, once he got, once he got not, uh, hurt, I think that definitely changed things up. Um, and changed up potentially their effectiveness. There's one other thing we saw, Dev, that I also wanted to bring up before we let that go, is that the more than anything, I saw the Texans trying the same thing the Packers did in terms of trying to run no huddle on third down, and they were twice they were able to keep the Ravens' dime personnel off the field, once on a third and four and the other on a third and seven. And I thought, you know, this is obviously a place where you need to have your dime personnel on and where you really would want uh, Owasu off and you'd want uh, Levine on, but they weren't able to get it on. And part of that, I, I wonder how much do you think is a function of the players involved and their awareness? Because I believe you can, you can get that personnel off or you should be able to get that personnel off anytime you really are aware of the game situation. Yeah, that's a great point. I, it seems to be, a re- again, another reoccurring issue that's propped up before when teams have sped up the pace and, and run a no huddle um they the ravens get locked into their personnel so i do think it's a matter i do think it's a matter of the players being aware uh i think they, they got caught off guard um, especially if it's situational when you know it's not necessarily as consistent you know play to play but this is something that even going into games you know like the steelers are a perfect example they run a lot of no huddle so and i i there's been times when the defenders, if it's not the defenders, the coaches not being totally prepared for that uh, and just not being able to adjust with their substitute uh, substitution. So it's something that has come up against them, and I think offenses, you know, are trying to take advantage or have taken advantage of it. So. 
All right. Uh, well, let's use that transition to get down to how some of the actual guys did. And let's go into the weeds a little bit. And let's start with the defensive linemen. And there was, uh, what is it, 64 defensive snaps or, I guess, offensive snaps that the defense had to cover. Um, let's start with Carl Davis, who was on the field for 17 of those. Yeah, I, he had a good game. I thought uh, Davis uh, is really showing up as the best in terms of yards per play for the defender. And that's really not all him. That's a fact of the packages that he plays in. So he played when he's on the field, generally speaking, Pierce and Williams were also on the field. Adding Davis to that means you've got three linemen and you expect the run to not work under that situation. And it didn't against the Texans. They only got... Uh, uh, 2.2, I think, yards per play when that was in. I might be wrong about that. I will pull that up in just a second. 1.7 yards per play, 15 carries for nine yards with the three of those guys on the field. So very effective for Davis in that regard and, and his contribution to that. Uh, Davis does less against the pass, and I think that's something he really needs to do is he needs to figure out how he makes an impact when the other team does throw the ball and they have three linemen in the game because they need him to create something, whether it's an opportunity for a blitz from somebody else or an opportunity for stunting perhaps if, if he could uh, he could become a guy on that. But he needs to do something in terms of the pass rush. All right. Um, Willie Henry pay, played 43 snaps. He got a, I believe he got a fumble recovery, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I mean, one of the great fumble recoveries of all time. Uh, so he, he, of course, uh, tried to swat the ball away. I think everybody's accusing him for trying to pick it up, and maybe that's what he was trying to do. But it looked to me like he was trying to swipe the ball over to a clearer area of the field so he could pick, he could fall on it. And then he, he missed. He had time to get up onto his feet. He fell down, got up onto his feet, dove into the pile. And he was, we, we watched this about four times last night, but he was the eighth man into that pile. And you know what they say, eighth man in gets the ball. So he went into the bottom of the pile, dove in, pried that ball loose. It was it was one of the truly impressive fumble recoveries, very much like Owasu's last week when he clearly just went to the bottom of the pile, took the ball away from somebody. So uh, uh, love to see it. And uh, it wasn't Henry's only uh, contribution, certainly, in this game. Did a lot of other things. He deflected a pass his fifth of the season. He's now tied for third in the league in that. All kinds of pressure. What I'm more impressed with, and you can go out to the website and look at the specific plays, follow along with Willie Henry's great plays, because he had six of them in 43 snaps, which is really good. But the thing I'm most impressed with Henry is his ability to deal with a double team. He can beat a double team. He can cause two guys to get their shoulders turned. And we've already seen he's been able to get his hands up when he doesn't get past the double team. That's three ways to really affect that, and I think he's good at all three of them. Yeah, Ken, he's actually, he's doing such a good job using his hands as well. Like, I mean, it's improved, he's improved tremendously from last season, but even more so than I would have expected, um, just with his strength. Not necessarily quick active hands, because he has those, but his power. So that's been really eye-popping for me, because the comparison was to Timmy Jernigan when they drafted Mm -hmm. him, but I think he's got more raw power than Timmy Jernigan has to shed and to be able to, to be strong up front with his, uh, with his uh, upper body. That, that, that's a great point, and, and he certainly is the natural name that comes up when you talk to him, Jernigan, because they must have thought that he could play this role, along, of course, with, with Urban and, and others, but that he could play this role as an inside pass rusher uh, in order to be willing to make that trade. And now they've got three cheap years of Willie Henry, including the, the, the rest of this one, 
And Jernigan is going to be making a ton of money after this year, and the Ravens wouldn't have been able to afford him anyway. So they got a, they got a nice draft return. They found the replacement immediately, and he's got three cheap years left. That's checking all the boxes. I believe Jernigan already has cashed in. I don't have it right in front of me, uh, but I believe the Eagles yeah, they did, did. Give, him an ex- give him an extension. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's already cashed in and then gotten – and that's not to say that that's, you know, uh, that would have been a, a bad move for the Ravens, but they would have had to make a decision between him and Brandon Williams, they made their decision. So uh, for the people that, I mean, I've heard people say, well, why couldn't they have kept both of them? And they just couldn't have. So they made a calculated risk. And to your point, the, the reason you make that move is because uh, you have equity in those draft picks that you had between Henry um, and Carl Davis, et cetera. Those guys are starting to, uh, they're doing a nice job of offsetting Jernigan's loss. Right, well, they, they don't have anybody that's beyond the third year, except for Williams, who signed, and now Urban, who future is up in the air, frankly, coming off the Liz Frank injury, to really see what value he, he, can, uh, he can present on the open market. But the Ravens may get him back as well. The disappointing thing has been that Bronson Kafusi has not really stepped forward. And I thought this, you know, he had an opportunity for an extra activation of a defensive lineman in a game like this. I was a little sad they didn't take it when they could have deactivated maybe an inside, sorry, maybe an outside linebacker, either Bowser or Williams, or perhaps you you go with one less uh, defensive back in the game. You have eight, and I know any of those are a special teams loss, but I think also the risk is very high that you end up with only four guys in an extensive snap game. And then you really overwork your line, and you end up with nothing left in the fourth quarter. And I, I kind of think that's what happened against the Bears, for example. Right. Yeah, so, I think you and I could have a show for just figuring out the the, the actives and inactives. That could be its own yeah. show weekly. Because yeah. um, just to jump in real quick, um, you know, the Texans I, I thought would do what they did: come out and shotgun and try to throw the football. Um, you know, I didn't think they were going to be able to pound it with Lamar Miller. So did that play a factor in this? And and having a little bit more, um, you know, having the linebackers active and, and just having a little bit more speed? I don't know. I mean, I think that's something where I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear uh, the decision that went into who's active and who's not. Right. It, it, it does seem to be easier to me, though, that you can split your outside linebacker snaps among four guys a lot easier than you can you can split your defensive line snaps among four guys because you got you, you do actually average the same number per play they use 2.03 defensive linemen per play because they play uh, smith a fair amount on the inside and right there i'm making the argument for keeping five outside linebackers i know just to start with but if the other team decides to run a lot then you use a lot more three defensive linemen sets and then they would have had to probably use Patrick Kirkard for some snaps in this game, which I, I don't think they really want to do anymore. I think they, they really consider him exclusively a fullback at this point since it's been, what, four or five weeks since he's had a defensive snap. Right. No, good point. Right. So the uh, – all right, so four linemen, they, they made it through the game with just a four. They've got the five outside linebackers. Uh, outside of Suggs, who really stood out in those outside linebackers? Well, I'll pick one, and then why don't we why don't we have Dev pick one too here? So I liked Zadarius Smith's game. So he's had nine quarterback hits now the last four games. He had three in this one. Two showed up in the in the game book, but he actually had a third that was was very clear on a spin move off the left guard. Uh, very impressive game. His quarterback hits are being high value quarterback hits because 
Three of them have turned into interceptions in the last two games. One of them turned into an intentional grounding. Two others turned into incomplete passes. So it's uh, been an impressive stretch here for Zedarius, and he's the, the one guy who's emergent right now for me. Yeah, I thought it was a quiet game for, for Judon. We saw him drop and make a nice play on, on the ball on that quick-hitting uh, throw to the receiver, and then he obviously got penalized off of that, which was, I don't know if he was just too pumped up because it was Monday Night Football and thought it was Monday Night Raw instead and just <laughs> did, <laughs> did like a slam. Um, but, you know, I, I, overall, I mean, if I think he didn't pop out or he popped in, in the, in the uh the way that, uh, you know, I agree that Darius Smith, to me, had the better game and, you know, really did apply pressure, even though he didn't get the sacks. But, I mean, I thought he uh, he influenced the game tremendously. And there was a couple of times of Patrick Gunwasu, uh, Ken, I don't know if you noted this, but Patrick Gunwasu was at outside linebacker on a couple of snaps. That's when they brought Jefferson down and um, just kind of had Gunwasu play on the edge. So um, didn't necessarily impact in, in from that position, I just think it's something worth noting going forward is, um, you know, when they play, uh, when they use that type of look, I think it gives them a, a little more, I, I think it just gives a little bit more for, for opposing offenses to have to, to worry about. That is the one they like. In terms of faking the blitz, they love the double-A look. So they want to bring two guys. I, I consider the double-A look to be a, a broad set of looks. It's it's bringing your two inside linebackers up somewhere on the line of scrimmage. And in, in Awasu's case in this game, it was on the outside they brought him up. Mosley, it can be outside or inside. So I, I agree with you. I, I just think it's part of the regular kind of uh, rush four, drop two, or rush five, drop one they're doing. I don't really consider him an outside linebacker in that case. But you're right. If they run the ball, he'd have responsibility to hold the to hold the edge in theory. So they've got some confidence in it. Confidence in it. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and one quick note about Tim Williams' I. I know he didn't exactly uh, make a dent in the few snaps he played. It, snaps, to me, they still need to to be increased um, going forward. And I know Ken, you and I have had spirited talks about this, but um, especially as you're getting late in the season with guys, uh, you know, wearing down, I think he's got to be a bigger part of the rotation. Uh, and I think he just he brings an element, especially when he's rushing with his hand down in a three-point stance. I think that's when he's at his best. So that speed rush, that, that ability to get a, turn the corner. Um, so I, I just want to see him get more involved. I, I like it too, Dev, and I would like him to be more of a pure specialist, kind of what Kruger was in about his third year when Kruger started to become really effective. And that means he's on for like two snaps in a row at the most. So you bring him on maybe on second yep. and ten, and he also plays third and seven kind of thing. But I, I, I don't like it when they bring him in um, rotationally rather than situationally. So he's ended up playing four or five or six consecutive snaps. I think you lose a lot of that freshness advantage with Williams. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's a great point. I, mean, I think that's, you know, when they bring him in for a stretch, um, I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I, don't, I, have, I don't hate it, um, but I do think, yeah, he's got a place if he's rotating. And maybe you, you have to get a little creative and, um, and, you know, maybe stand up Judon or do something where you can, you can still have all those guys on the field at once. Um, every once in a while, I think just tweaking things to give Williams more opportunities. The thing Williams has to work on, though, is an inside move, some sort of counter, because every time, if he's just going to look to to use his speed to turn the corner, um, that's also, I think, something where he can bet – he can – make it a, a, a better decision for the coaches by having some counter moves and some other 
um, moves just to kind of give them a little more versatility. I, I completely agree with that. You know what? I thought we saw a lot more of that in the preseason. We saw a spin yeah, move, I want to say, four times in the preseason or so, and I, I very impressed by that. But anyway. All right, now I've, I've held you guys off. I know you both want to talk about the old man on the field who was on the field for 55 snaps, so clearly he was hyped <laughs> up for Monday Night Football. Go ahead and let's praise Terrell Suggs. <laughs> All right, I, I'll, I, can, I can start. <laughs> display of, obviously, some really great pass rush moves. He had two fast sacks. The, and he had other times where he got to the quarterback pretty quickly and did not convert, but he, but he had the S-8 where he beat Allen and then Blue very quickly. And, and Allen was pulling, actually, from the right side on the play where he got the first sack. Uh, he was no match. He couldn't nearly get over there in time, but Blue couldn't stop him either, and he was on the quarterback inside of two seconds, I would say, for, for that sack. The, the later sack, he beat the left tackle Lamb outside for the, for the sack minus seven, is the kind of high-motor sack I think of Suggs delivering, where the quarterback takes just a, a half second too long in the pocket. Internal clock is not quite set properly, and, and Suggs gets the strip from behind. So ideal situation. Uh, a lot of people have commented about, about Suggs folding his arms and, and posing for the cameras while the ball's still loose on the ground and Henry's getting it. But uh, great game from Terrell. Love his football smarts. Oh, the screen pass, too. I loved him, loved him blocking that screen pass. There's not very many outside linebackers who are aware enough to figure out what's going on that they can get up and, and block that ball. Yeah, that's just it. It's, 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 uh, he's so intelligent with chaos all around him. I, I don't know how to, to kind of put that into one word but he, or a couple words, but that's ex- you know, it's just it, it, the instincts have built over the years, but he's always had them. So his football intelligence and his football IQ is off the charts for a guy that plays that position. The other thing, Ken, is he's still so tremendous at anticipating the snap. There's a couple of mm-hmm. times in that game where he was just he was already there. Like he beat his guy. Guy wasn't out of, out of his stance. So still one of the best in terms of uh, his ability to anticipate the snap. And the thing that he got knocked on when he ran that poor 40 time, uh, well, he got knocked for running the poor 40 time, but the, the, the thing is, Suggs' first step is still tremendous. That's what he brought to the table as a pass rusher coming out of Arizona, uh, Arizona State. So you still see that on display. At his age, with all of the injuries he's dealt with, he's a physical marvel. Uh, but you look at the things that have been a hallmark, I guess, throughout his career, is his football IQ, his first step and his anticipation. Those three things he still does at or better than anybody else in, at his position. And, and presumably he'll never lose his football IQ. He'll lose some ability, but he'll never lose his football IQ. I guess it brings the next question is, does he come back next year? Oh, I think so. I think so. the way he's playing right now and the way he feels, uh, I know there's been talks of, or from him even, just kind of very retrospective um, discussions about the game and whether or not he's going to keep playing, but the, well, the question—I I mean, I guess what ends up what ends up coming up here is from a contract standpoint, right? Like, what do you do with Suggs? Um, I, I don't know that they necessarily have to do anything per se, you know. But I, I mean, yeah, I think he comes back. What do you think? You think he comes yeah, back? Yeah, I, I do. I think, and, and you know, I had him buried, dead and buried last year at the Meadowlands, uh, not with Hoffa or anything, but but I meant that. I, I, he had had a sack on his last NFL play, or could have, and he was out hurt. And I thought he might not come back from the injury, just retire with the Ravens in, in what seemed to be uh, 
uh, a season that could not be recovered from. But then, of course, he, he, he came back, played well the rest of the year, played very well this year. Nine and a half sacks in 11 games. I mean, he's a premier pass rusher again. This is what's really weird about this. They only save $4 million according to um, uh, Brian's numbers. Uh, Russell Street, if you go to, or, or at... Ravens salary cap, if you follow Brian, best salary cap information on the Ravens you can find. There's about $4 million of savings for, for cutting Suggs next year. I can't believe they do it for that. What they might do it for is the combination of that and then just deciding that they have to give some of their young pass rushers a chance to develop. They have to get Bowser and Williams more snaps. Uh, you know, they have to see what these guys can do and, and, and maybe even determine if they really want to make a move on Zedaria Smith, who will be in his fourth year next year, and, and, and how they want to handle that. But if it was stri- strictly from a play perspective and his own contribution, it's no brainer to keep Suggs from my mind. You, you guys are looking yeah, at absolutely. it. You guys are looking at it from the wrong angle. You're looking at it from the football angle when really you got to look at this team's going to need some motivation for the postseason play, and it worked for Ray Lewis. We, we need. Uh, Suggs to announce his retirement so Flacco can become Flacco again this year. How cool would that be? How cool would that be? I, I don't can think... you imagine him giving that speech the way Ray did it, at the podium? It would be somewhat different. And I, I, I look forward to both of their speeches, or in fact to all three, but if, I, if I'm going to rate him right now, I'm thinking that Reed will be the will will have a speech that is heartfelt, but it, it won't it won't resonate in the same way the other two guys will. Ray obviously is going to take it to another level, and and, and there'll be a preacher element that I might not like. But by far, by far, the one I'm looking forward to the most is Terrell Suggs. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it'll it'll be funny. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. All that. I don't know. Suggs went into a little bit of that preacher mode after the game yesterday. A lot of God is good. I missed that. Yeah, he did. He did do that. I caught that too. So I, I mean, well, I'll tell you this: like when we move on from Suggs, there's never, just like Ray and Ed, you know, there's not going to be another Suggs in terms of obviously the play, but also the personality. Right. Sure. Well, it'll be interesting where they go for their next leader. I mean, Mosley is the natural, uh, and I guess you know maybe Marlon Humphrey is the guy after him, but we'll see. It doesn't ever seem to be a cornerback that leads your team, though. It's just a, not a leadership position. You know, a safety, he kind of leads the secondary, communicates with the rest of the secondary for starters. It just doesn't ever really seem to be a corner or a wide receiver who's your team leader. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and, and there's some aspects of, uh, is there going to be somebody that really emerges and, you know, is a vocal leader uh, that everybody can rally around? But then you get into the whole dynamic of this team not having another guy on the other side of the ball that can do the same. So I don't sure. want to touch that one. <laughs> right. uh, I don't want to make this into a political podcast, though. So. No, and that's where also the NFL is changing, and, and you're losing a lot of those vocal guys as, uh, as it grows. Um, but we haven't talked about the secondary yet, so let's get into the secondary. Let's get back to what you guys really know in football and look at, uh, and at, at how the secondary played. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start with one player that I thought had a, had a damn good game was Maurice Kennedy. He played 28 snaps. He played slot corner the entire time this week. They had him up for a few snaps on the outside in the last game, but uh, 16 nickel packages, 12 dime packages. He got all the dime play, which I thought was significant. They took Webb off the field for all the individual dime packages and had Kennedy in the slot. Kennedy was also 16 of, of 38 nickels in this game. 
Um, I thought one thing I noticed was he's having some visible struggles with pre-snap positioning. He really did not know where he was supposed to be on the field all the time. And that was clear. He's oftentimes the last guy to get lined up. Oftentimes he's looking at somebody and they're pointing in the other direction. So a little bit of that. But the quarterback hit was a very nice thing. The roughing the passer flag was completely ridiculous. Uh, You know, he, he basically put his shoulder right into the quarterback's groin. There's no more effective you know, place for a defensive back to hit the quarterback or more legal than that, I don't think. And uh, unfortunate that that got flagged. I did not see him get targeted past the line of scrimmage. And maybe you can remember one, but uh, but I did not note one. Um, there was one where he had a tackle for negative yardage on a pass play that I do not believe even was his target. But uh, but I did not notice one past the line of scrimmage. What about you, Dev? Yeah, no, it looked like um, a lot of his action was around the around the line of scrimmage but not really anything deeper than that and uh, yeah i think he he you know it was he really didn't i mean in terms of assignments you got to give him credit he played a good game but the texans for what they had to bring to the table i think bruce ellington was their their uh biggest threat maybe uh, out of the slot and, and as an inside route runner so there just wasn't um there wasn't a major threat for him to have to deal with at least in this game next week's a dip the next game is going to be a different uh, story, though, uh, against Golden Tate. So, um, but yeah, for what he needed to do, I think he he was solid and he was physical, which you like to see. So, uh, and it was interesting that they did make uh, Hill inactive. So, I think it it's turning into his job uh, to lose at this point. I know they also use Webb quite a bit, but I mean Kennedy to me with his ability to press and play and, and just I think just physically brings a, a better dimension than than Webb does. Well, I, I would be agree a, with that. A guy you, you blitz as well. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Obviously, you showed that in this game, but I would take Kennedy or, or Hill over Webb at this point, even though Webb's experience. I think Webb can still help the team on the back end if they got creative with packages and want a second free safety effectively in the game at times. But I'll tell you what, I didn't think of this, but I should have, is this is a game they really you could have used Marcus Maurice Kennedy on the outside. You know, he had problems with, with uh, Carr, and obviously he was not cutting it. But to put Kennedy on the outside, I think, would have been an interesting idea. He's certainly got the size and the uh, aircraft carrier uh, components to play on the outside more than on the slot anyway. I think he'll be back on the outside eventually. But, uh, you know, certainly with Tavon coming back next year, I think he's the incumbent slot corner, even though he didn't play. And that, that Hill is the more natural backup in the slot with Kennedy on the outside. So... We'll see how that plays out, but, uh, but that's the way I do it. Um, Carr, Carr was out there a bunch, but it seemed like he was always holding or pass interference. Uh, whenever the cameras were on him, he was getting a flag. What's up with that? Is that because he's constantly being beat because Hopkins is, is so good? What was up with Carr? A, a lot well, of things, I think. I think. Oh, yeah, no, I was going to say, I think Carr really struggled. Uh, I think he struggled on that second second move from what I recall. I mean, that's where Hopkins really gets you. He gets you everywhere. He gets you on the release. He gets you on on the first step, and then he gets you on the second move. And I, I think Carr just had a, a lot of trouble recovering um, and being able to, at, at that point, once he was beat, yeah, that's when you're grabbing, that's when you're holding, that's when you're trying uh, desperately just to, to pre- prevent a big play from taking place but Ken I don't know if you saw that or if you saw yeah I mean I I think we see a lot of the same thing from Carr week after week first of all when you press you often trail 
So as soon as you, you put your hands on the guy at the line of scrimmage or even four or five yards past, you're, you're often going to be trailing in, in, the, in the coverage. When you trail in the coverage and you're a half step behind, you often run into the guy. When you're a full step behind, you hold or you, or you, you get flagged for some worse penalty. Uh, that was Torrey Smith's great ability was to be able to hey, make a move, certainly, but, but be able to run through some of that contract, uh, contact, gain a yard on the guy down the field, and that's where Flacco got some prodigiously long pass interference calls. One year, they had, Torrey Smith had the three longest pass interference calls in the entire NFL, 50, 50, and 60 yards, uh, all thrown to Torrey Smith. So, uh, yeah, I think Carr suffers from a lot of that. A faster receiver certainly gives him a lot of trouble, uh, period. But the other thing, he just got out physical, and that's not something I'm used to from Brandon Carr. Mm-hmm. Hopkins was too good in the phone booth with Brandon Carr. Yeah, I, I, that's exactly what jumped out to me, too. Between both Jimmy and Brandon, how Hopkins was able to win those hand fights and just be able to get the push-offs. I mean, this is not – look, this crew didn't handle that well. I mean, they were kind of called us in, in favor of the offensive players. So it didn't benefit either cornerback either. I, I didn't think – I mean, there was a couple of plays where I thought Carr actually did an okay job using his hands and, and trying to locate the football. And then it, it was just such a ticky-tacky game that – they called it every time on him, and they called it on, on Jimmy as well. So that didn't necessarily that didn't help the cause for either guy. But DeAndre, yeah, DeAndre was doing such an outstanding job of just working through all that contact and and just being able to find the football. So I agree. Um, and he was also he was also getting him on the first step too. So just a I think just a extraordinary display of physical and also gracefulness on on Hopkins' part. All right. Uh, Jefferson and Levine both had interceptions in this game. Are we seeing now that it's week 12, are we finally seeing these guys start to improve and be comfortable in their positions? Well, let's, let's each talk about one of them. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, take, I'll take Jefferson in this game if you're okay with that, Dev. You could talk about Levine. Um, but Jefferson played every snap. Uh, he did play the run well, I thought, very well. There are three I picked out in my notes. I'd like, love for you to go to my article Get out game pass. Take a look at those play-by-play. See if you're seeing the same things I am. Uh, I did see that he was on the outside looking in on a lot of zone coverage in this game. And even though he had the interception, and it's what, his first, his second or third career interception, I forget. I know he had one against the Ravens, but he, he either had one or two coming here in his, in his career with the Cardinals. And uh, I, I am still bothered by his ability to, to be beyond that first level of coverage. All right. Yeah, uh, and in, in terms of, in, oh, sorry, go, uh, Josh. No, I, I was. Might have been one. You're good. I, I was just passing it over to you, Dev. Take charge. Yeah. So Levine, uh, you know, I, I noted that they did play dime pretty exclusively when it was third and seven or longer. Uh, Ken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Levine was on the field every time out. It's something you and I have talked about for three seasons, maybe at at least. You know, just getting him on the field, getting him in dime. You know, they they just have way more options in terms of their blitz looks, which you saw. Uh, you know, if he's bluffing, or in this case, he bluffed a couple times through uh, bluffed the a gap blitz a couple times, and then got Savage on that final interception, um, just because he has that opportunity to to close the close the space, even if he bluffs out of the blitz. So, in other words, even if he's showing blitz and he has to turn and run, he's going to be a lot more effective doing that than a linebacker. So that, that, that's, that's right. a small little subtlety, and that just 
that came up on that play from a quarterback standpoint. You know, he's closing the space, he's closing the the, the, time, the speed from one point to the other. Um, so that's one thing. But then, you know, just I think he brings a lot in terms of being able to also pick up, you know, a back coming out of the backfield, just being able to pick up any underneath routes. So, uh, you know, you can't say enough. I think he's been phenomenal in that role, and, and it's kind of an unsung guy. You're not going to see that. You're not going to see uh, Levine's uh, performance necessarily pop out when it comes to uh, a lot of assessments and, I guess, coverage from a media standpoint, just because what he's doing is very exclusive. Um, but, you know, I think uh, you made the comparison to Chad Williams. Very good comparison, I think. Just I think Levine's even, you know, a better player, but just the idea of having a guy that can really um, handle and, and wear a lot of different hats for you. Yeah, I mean, the Ravens organizationally have had an unbelievably classy uh sequence of dimes through the years. It goes all the way back to Ralph Staten. And then they had uh, Corey Harris in that role for, for several years before he became the, the strong safety. Then then they had uh, 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 the guy who blocked the Mitchell, the guy who recovered the field goal, took it in. He was there for a year and change. Yep. And, the, and then they had uh, Williams for three and a half years, basically, in that position. Jerome Sapp for a while, Haruki Nakamura after that. So uh, and, then, and then now we have Levine, and it's been a tremendously classy line of dimes interrupted by five years of P's not playing any dime, a 2.7% dime for the <laughs> first five years of his D.C. time. And I guess just a wrap on this, if it's third, it's third and seven or longer, third and eight and longer, um, the odds are so minute, minute that you're going to have to deal with a run play, which is going to be successful enough to get that conversion, right? So if you get if you get a seven or eight yard run and you're playing dime, hats off to that. Hats off to the yeah. offense is the way I look at that. Yeah, so I mean, I agree. I think it's a low percentage. So much more. Yeah, so it just gives you so much more uh, in terms of speed, in terms of the well, rush. But when you mentioned so his. It, it does. It gives you it gives you tremendously more. And the, the opportunity last year was Albert McClellan was a guy who was staying on the field a lot instead of Levine. And he definitely doesn't give you anything more in terms of the pass rush because you're looking with either of those guys to get a free run. And Levine is going to be better, I think. McClellan may be better at picking up tells or something like that, but he's, he's very rarely going to be able to use his strength to get by and, and sack the quarterback in time. But Levine has is, is got a better chance to pick up a free run, and then all the coverage gains you get from, from having Levine on the field are, are very positive. So I, I, we're, we're clearly very <laughs> effusive about Levine here, but, uh, but definitely one of my favorite Ravens right now. All right. Uh, whenever I talk to you guys, you always make me feel better about the Ravens' defense. And you're, you're praising these guys, so let's get straight to it with your defensive MVPs and talk about the, your top three guys this, this week. Uh, do you want to go first? And we, we usually name them three to one, Josh and I do, and, and he's got the cat and the other team's coach and you know some guy in the third row. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take uh, – you know what? I'll take I'll take the grounds crew this week because that field looked way better than the, than uh, FedEx field did on Thursday. That's a good one. Okay. Okay, I'll give you my that one. Well, oh. no, go. yeah, you take it. You might be able to follow this a little bit better than me. So I have I have a pair of guys at number three, and don't feel like overlap is not allowed. Josh has his own special rules he goes by, but but Tony Jefferson and Brandon Williams are my combined number three here. Jefferson, good game against the run, big interception, but Brandon Williams did a hell of a lot of things. Stuffed the run 
also applied some pressure for the first time in a while. And uh, the the run game is back under four yards a carry as a unit, and and that to me is an important milestone for the Ravens to jealously guard. Yeah, I might have to piggyback on on Brandon Williams, who uh, we talked about it earlier, but his ability to clog the run and, and command a double team, but those inside runs when teams are lined up in shotguns, they spread you out, and you have your nickel on the field, he's the point guy, and, and his ability to to handle that was a huge, I think had a huge impact on the game because Texans got nothing going um, when they tried to run the ball on first down and, and early down. So I, mean, I think we, they clearly were trying to do that um, from that spread from that spread look. Now, part of that, like I said before, Lamar Miller being out, that's a big difference. But nonetheless, I think Brandon Williams, his ability to control the run game and his ability to do that going forward is going to be huge because they're going to face a lot more spread looks, including uh, against the Lions, against the Steelers. So, um, you know, his impact was tremendous in this game. Right. Well, he and Pierce are, are will be plenty effective dealing with running out of three receiver sets. The two of them are, are, are quite effective at doing that. All right, I'll give you my, my – I'm sorry, Josh, your turn for the number two defensive star of the game. Uh, number two, I'm going to go with the guy on the pregame tailgate that was cheering for go everybody that keeps getting tossing around on the internet. I'll give it to him. Okay. I, I, I'm leaving yeah. – I, I, I did not plan that. Wait, you took star. my pick. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I know that's what, who Dev had lined up as his number one, but that's a little <laughs> stretch. <laughs> All right. Right, we could go the snake draft route, or we could. We probably have two guys I'm thinking of here that that each deserve things. So maybe we do a little point counterpoint on those two. You 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 take the guy you want, and I'll take I'll take the other guy. Are we taking actual players? We're taking take, yeah. You take an actual actual player. Make your case. Make your case why that guy had a better game than the other guy. Because I'm sure we're talking about the same two guys at the top. Or I would. Yeah, that I think we are, it right? sucks, and I. I... I mean, Suggs is definitely the guy, <laughs> just physically. But you could argue that Willie Henry, I mean, I'll take Willie Henry for the sake of the argument here because okay. I, I just think he I think he, uh, he made some key plays between the deflections and also just kind of um, pushing the pocket. They didn't get as much of a push as I would have liked to have seen, you know, consistently in, in, in obvious passing situations, but he was the guy applying that push. And the push is key because as much as Suggs, you know, I think did a great job of, of getting a, a rush off the edge. Uh, the push is what, you know, I think would, would force Savage to, A, hurry, hurry the clock a little bit more, but also he, he's not a mobile guy. So I think just getting him off the spot uh, was key. And, and Henry did that nicely with his bull rush. And just overall, like you said before, he had such a, such a good all-around game that, you know, I think he, he kind of was – he flew under the radar, though. Okay, well, you made it easy for me because I, I did have Henry number one originally on this list, and then I thought about it a little bit, and I, I, I had the list of plays that and all the Suggs did, and there's just too much. Uh, seven pass rush events as I counted it in this game. Uh, he knocked down a pass, and then you throw in another play that we don't talk about much, but he drew a holding call. That's important. You, you need to keep track of those mm-hmm. things. The guys who draw holding calls are, are creating the defensive variation you need to win games, not that Suggs doesn't do plenty of that other ways. Uh, the Ravens were in the backfield all night deflecting passes. I guess Zadarius Smith had one, Owasso had one, we got one from Suggs, and we got one from Willie Henry. So there were at least four passes batted at the line of scrimmage. I think the last time they did that was against uh, Dalton last year in the game in Baltimore when they just took yep. over with uh, 
uh, with with batted passes. But anyway, great game for for Suggs. Uh, I could have gone with either guy. I'd have been happy happy defending either, but uh, he'd be my number one guy. Well, I, I don't think you can go go wrong with either guy. And uh, on another note, I think they've got to be up there in terms of being the leaders in batted balls. They just they just seem to do it on a constant basis. Well, I can tell you this: in terms of the the uh, passes defensed, they are not number one, and they've got by far, and I mean by far, the best ratio of interceptions per pass defense. So, an interception is a pass defense. To start with that, and just to give you, give you an idea here, and I'm going to try and get this in the right place here. We go with the rankings, and no, that's not going to do it. Uh, I'll, I will have this. I will have this for us before the end of the show here. But we better go on to the next segment, Josh, right, and then yeah. I'll come back to it. Let's go to the mailbag. It's uh, it's a small mailbag, mailbag tonight since uh, it was a late night last night, and uh, <laughs> people are still processing this game. Yeah. So the, uh, we got a question here from Dustin Cox, who asks, was this more of an off game for Jimmy Smith or just the fact that DeAndre Hopkins is really good? I don't want to make excuses for Jimmy, but I wonder if Marlon not being able to relieve him like usual affected his performance given the Achilles problem. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can jump in here. I don't, um, I don't think physically there was anything wrong with Jimmy Smith. I mean, I just looked, just looking at him, he looked good. He looked good turning and cutting. Um, I do think it was a byproduct of Hopkins just being that good. I mean, if you look at it last week, I mean, he played against Patrick Peterson and, and, and scored against him, had his moments against him. He's been doing it to everybody. Richard, Richard Sherman, the Legion of Boom. Um, he's a special player and. And just the fact that he's able to do this with Tom Savage as his quarterback uh, is, is even more incredible. And his ability to get separation, but again, we talked about it before, I mean, his ability also to get, um, get to the ball in closed quarters. I mean, there were some times when the coverage and the, the windows were tight, and he was still able to, through his physical ability, timing, um, just everything, you know, he was able to get to the football when other guys wouldn't be able to. So, um, last night, I mean, I, I, I always, I mean, up until this point, still had tremendous respect for Hopkins. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm looking at him now as, as the best this year, at least he's the best receiver in football. I know Brown's been doing his thing, but you got to give it to Hopkins. I think just because of all of the circumstances and adversity that's in his face and he's able to produce week in and week out. Yeah, good, good, good point. Exactly, Andre Johnson. A lot of that same feeling about him years ago for for this Texans team. But I agree. It was it's, it's down to Brown and Hopkins as who's the best receiver, at least in the AFC this year. Uh, Julio Jones might have something to say about it in the NFC, but uh, but those are two hellaciously good receivers that the Ravens will unfortunately have to face one more Brown. All right. Then uh, at Josh Soroka is going to piggyback on that and ask, is there any chance Perriman will ever be able to be up to Hopkins level? <laughs> what, what, why are they so different oh, with wide receivers? <laughs> There's, there, there, are, there are literally so many answers. The list is very long in terms of going that. But how about I pick three things and you pick three things, Dev? I, I'm going to start with the ability to run through contact is something Perriman doesn't have. And that, it, it goes two ways. One is disengaging and being able to get down the field. 
and or or out of your cut even uh, without the contact affecting you. The other is Perriman is obviously distracted by a number of things on the football field. It might even be the ball as a distraction to him. That's a, that's an overstatement. But the the hand play between the receiver and and Perriman just bothers the hell out of him. He's not capable of the same kind of phone booth type receptions that we saw from Hopkins in this game. So uh, that'd be you know. Two or three things right there that I think are are, are difficult for Perriman. I mean, there uh, Perriman does not lack physical skills. He's a physical match for Hopkins. He lacks receiving skills. That's the problem. And right. the Ravens, if they want to right. fix him, they've got to figure out how to do that. Yeah, I, I no, that's a great way of putting it. And his inability to get a release as well. I mean, if you just look at the basic um, aspect of Hopkins' game, if you see how many different ways he can get a release from a line of scrimmage, from contact, from guys trying to press and jam them. And, you know, something that I, I tried to pay, play, uh, pay close attention to at training camp, Ken, I'm sure you did as well. They worked through a lot of different um, drills with him and, and spent extra time on it. Uh, that's not to say they don't do that with other receivers, but I think they did try to work and emphasize, emphasize this part of his game uh, throughout training camp. It just hasn't come to fruition, so he still has a tough time getting that release, which, you know, when you're a guy that doesn't run as many routes and doesn't have as much versatility as he does in terms of his route tree, it's going to be that much more difficult to, if you're not not getting a clean release of the line of scrimmage, you're not going to be able to accomplish much down the field. That's just as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, other things about his game that aren't working are, are, I don't think he sells a stop-and-go fake or any of the other potential fakes very well. Obviously, you know, coming out of a break is just a problem as well oftentimes for him. But what can you do about that during the off-season? So my question was, could the Ravens start or find that receiving coach out there who could actually bump up his value in some way, whether that means you spend a lot of time on the jugs gun trying to catch the ball differently, trying to understand what's wrong about your finger placement, trying to figure out with hand play and various mechanisms or various tools you could use on him to try and get him to free himself from contact, how he best counters the normal moves he might see from a defensive back. I just wonder, is there is there a school out there for that that he could go to during the offseason, or is there a program they could develop for him? I don't think so. Uh, I, I, and I think part of the problem is, he, you know, you have a guy that was able to make so many big plays in college purely just with his ability to use his, his frame and using his speed. And he got away with running those bad routes. But in the NFL, um, when you're rounding your routes out and you're not able to cut and be able to show, you're not able to sell the route that you're running, right? I mean, a lot of the time he's giving it away. So, there's a subtlety to it, and and he said with Hopkins. I mean, we're getting back to the, you know how does he compare to DeAndre Hopkins? So um, there's an ability, you know, just putting it together as a route runner that he just has never had. Um, and then on top of that, to your point, with the hands, the inability to concentrate and naturally to pluck the ball and, and, and be a, a hands receiver. Throw that together. I mean, you're only going to be able to bring so much to the table um, with your game on the field, and te- defenses know. Defenses know what he's going to be doing. The routes that he's, he's there's only so many routes he can run as well. So they they are all all over him, and he doesn't really add another dimension. I, I just like that we not to, not to brag not to bag on him. Yeah, no, I, I just <laughs> I just like that I just like that we spent a few minutes to compare Brashard Perryman to one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. 
That that is absolutely the best at Josh Roca question I, of I like, all time. I, I like I like holding to him to a high standard, even if I don't think he should ever be on the team again and ever see the field. <laughs> uh, Dev, I enjoy your writings over at Russell Street Report. Thank you for joining us uh, tonight. What are you working on this week for Russell Street Report, and how can people get in touch with you on Twitter? Uh, they can follow me at Dev uh, you don't need to worry about how to pronounce it. You, can, you know, just make sure you know how to spell it. Um, but yeah, at Dev Panchua is is how you can get at me. Um, and then in terms of uh, what I'm working on this week, um, I'm working on the the upcoming Battle Plans article. We'll do a deep dive into the D- Detroit Lions, some familiarity with Jim Caldwell being the head coach there, and uh, you know, it, it'll, it'll be a fun matchup. I, I always look forward to breaking down, um, and especially with the way the Ravens' defense is playing right now. This is going to be a nice litmus test, and just being able to break down a great well, I don't know if he's a great quarterback, Stafford. I don't know if I'd put him in that category. A real, real quarterback? A very good quarterback. A real quarterback. There you go. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. But uh, a guy that is going to give him a, a lot, you know, some challenges pre-snap and takes command of the offense, Josh. He's a guy that will uh, really uh, challenge this defense, I think, uh, mentally, so it's going to be tough to prepare for him. I look forward to breaking down Detroit and just kind of diving in a little bit deeper into, into that. So that's what, they, what fans can expect with battle plans um, for this week, at least. And uh, for the rest of the week, uh, for the rest of the season, they'll, they can expect the breakdowns and battle plans of all the games coming up. All right, uh, yeah, that's exciting, and it's a chance for the defense to prove themselves once again. Now, Ken, your defensive. Uh, film study article is already up on Russell Street Report, right? Yeah, already up there. I encourage you to go there. It's it's made for transparency. You can see if I'm full of crap, just take a look play-by-play play at what I've what I've claimed is happening. Look at it yourself. Um, I, I, I really encourage people to get Game Pass. If you don't have it, find that season ticket holder friend who's already boycotting the Ravens because of something and have him give you the password he has to get Game Pass because all PSL owners get it for free. Follow me on Twitter at Film Study Ravens. It's Dev for you. It's at Dev Penchwa. If they do at Dev P, will they probably get you during that? Uh, they should be able to get me. They should be able to bring up my my name at least. I think that mm-hmm. that should get them there in terms of uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine there's too many people with with uh, with that handle. So I think that that should I, work as well. I I, I think. I think you're being pretty. I, I, I know I, if I type it myself, I've got it, but that's probably because we've communicated right. a number of times before. But so. if, if you that's search, yeah, yeah. If you search Dev Ravens, he'll turn up. If you go and look at Ken, if, if someone goes on and looks at, at Film Study Ravens, you've got him mentioned in your line. People can find it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's certainly true. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Dev. We'd love to do a show regularly with you. I think you know this was a, this was a, a really good show, and we went an hour and fifteen minutes, which is about thirty minutes longer than normal. But we don't have sponsors, so we can do whatever the hell we want, and uh, and it'll be out <laughs> there, and people will have it for even the longest commutes. That was my pleasure, guys. A lot of fun. Uh, we'll do it again, and and uh, you know, I think this is a pairing that really uh is, is going to be enjoy- hopefully it's enjoyable for our fans going forward um from a from a pre-game post-game kind of uh snapshot so uh would love to do it again with you guys and josh you got a show uh, at is absolutely wonderful we need to mention every time yeah yeah my show is uh, at section 336 it's uh, a little more laid back than this a little less uh a little less 
statty and detailed, except for when we get to <laughs> baseball season. Then we'll really start to nerd out. Uh, but we have a lot of fun. I do it with my brother and brother-in-law. So, yeah, please check out at uh, Section 336. And I'm on Twitter at Josh Soroka. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of days with the offensive side of film study. So make sure you get in your questions now on hashtag film study mailbag on Twitter so we can uh, talk to you in a few days. And I, I just got our production assistant just handled me a note here and says the Ravens have 3.2 Passes defense per interception, the best in the NFL in terms of the fewest passes defenses per interception. Wow. Okay. I can't. I can't figure out if that's a good number. I know the percentage is good, but does that mean that we're not uh, defending enough? It means that they are. They're, they're actually they are fifth now in passes defense. So they've, they've okay. moved up a, a couple much slots at least in that category. But so they still lead good. the NFL in interception. So good. Good thing. Apologize for bringing that in. But when the production assistant runs in late, you don't want him to make it feel like he wasted his time over there tabulating it. So. Sure. Especially when I always thought you did all the work. <laughs> oh, see, now you know. <laughs> so, all right, guys. We'll have a good night, and we will talk soon. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. For the ones standing guard, for the eagle-eyed, for the knights in shining armor, and for all those who support them, we are Granger, your experienced safety partner, offering supplies and solutions for every industry, committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com slash safety, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.